Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome Jill Jacobson here as a Young Voices contributor. Jill, for the sake of folks who are meeting you for the first time, take a moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Brian, for having me. I am a second-year law student at Boston College Law School and a contributor here at Young Voices, and I live in Boston, Massachusetts. Wonderful. We've got you here for a great topic today, too. Um, I know that right now a very big issue is the matter of uh, questionable material in school libraries. And this has sparked a number of uh, pieces of legislation, uh, some good, some bad. I was not aware of, of Texas's approach to this, but I'm looking at an article that you had written for, um, I believe it was for the Dallas Morning News, about the Reader Act. Could you walk us through what does that particular piece of legislation set out to do in response to concerns over inappropriate material in, in school libraries? Certainly, these pieces of legislation are sweeping the nation, and the Reader Act is one such example. Um, essentially, what it does is attempts to standardize school curriculum for Texas public schools with the goal of preventing sexually explicit material from entering the curriculum. So it has three parts. Part one is a blanket prohibition of sexually explicit material. Part two requires parental consent for what's called sexually relevant material, so not obscenity, but still sexual in nature. And part three is a rating system that requires vendors, so booksellers that want to sell books to Texas public schools, to assign a rating on whether they think that a piece of literature is sexually explicit, sexually relevant, or not at all. Um, and that is up on a website for parents uh, and administrators alike to see. Now, those three things that you mentioned really aren't problematic per se, but your article points out that constitutionally there are some issues with the Reader Act. What are those issues? Certainly. So the first two portions of the act are completely fine. Like I said, obscenity is not covered by the First Amendment. So Restricting children's ability to view obscene materials is not unconstitutional. There is no First Amendment right that covers that. However, the First Amendment cover, protects speech, but it also limits the government's ability to compel speech from private citizens and businesses. So it protects your ability to say what you'd like to say, but it also protects you from having the government force you to say something that you don't want mm. to. And that's where the rating mechanism, this third part of the act, comes into play. So it requires bookstore vendors to assign a rating to the pieces of literature that they want to sell to Texas public schools. And, and that in and of itself is fine. But where things get problematic is that if the government, if the TEA disagrees with the rating that this bookseller has assigned a piece of literature, it can actually override it and provide its own rating. And Interesting. that would be fine, too, if consumers and citizens knew that that's what was going on. What gets problematic is they're really representing the vendor's speech. So, you know, if Brian Booksellers assigned it a certain rating and the Texas government disagrees and it overrides it, the website still appears as though Brian's booksellers gave it this new updated rating. And that could potentially be compelled speech. Wow. 
There's so many angles to consider on this. I mean, it's not like, okay, it's just this cut and dried, simple thing. We're just trying to keep inappropriate stuff out of kids' hands. Where is, uh, where's the equitable middle ground where, where people concerned about uh, proper boundaries on reading material uh, can, can have their concerns addressed without having to impose unnecessary limits on, on what other people see, read, or want for their kids? Certainly. And, and your question gets at the heart of these so-called book bans in general um, and, and the Reader Act as well, which really is the question of who decides, who decides what's appropriate, who decides what students should read. And I think the Reader Act furthers the goal of really putting this in the hands of parents. Anything that is in a gray area or is certainly sexually explicit is not in school curriculums. Books aren't banned in the sense that they no longer exist, right? If you're a parent and for some reason you really are of the opinion that your child should read this, then you can go out to a bookstore and buy it for them. These titles just won't be in school curriculum where they're forced upon children with no parental input whatsoever. Wow. Okay, now I'm I'm going to float something kind of radical out there. You feel free to, to swat this down if you want to. It seems <laughs> to me that uh, j- the the biggest blanket solution that I can think of would be at some in some way if we could separate school and state. In other words, if education was more privatized, parents would have absolute say over the kind of materials that their children were exposed to. Some parents would be totally okay with some of the, you know, more questionable books that some of us are are saying, I wouldn't want my kids being given that. Um, Is is that a reasonable approach? Tell me, am I being extremist? You're not going to hurt my feelings. No, I mean, I think that's that's an approach that we're seeing, right? I think parents who are financially able to leave the public school system are doing so. School choice is gaining traction all over the country. And I think it's for that reason, that in states that are not placing guardrails on the curriculum, parents sort of feel like they're at the whim of these increasingly politicized administrators and, and they are voting with their feet, so to speak, and trying to place their kids in alternative educational environments. I think that is a totally legitimate hypothetical and one that we're actually seeing play out in real time. And I love that you identified it's that that increasingly politicized uh, school boards and, and administrators um, I don't know what the solution is to something like that, because it seems like once something has become um, entangled with politics, it really just kind of becomes a power struggle from that point forward. I'm not sure how that process can be reversed. And I don't think it necessarily has to be in the sense that educational institutions are supposed to be laboratories for ideas. We're supposed to discuss politics and culture and social issues and all of these things. However, that doesn't necessarily include sexual obscene content, right? Which is why, you know, Texas's Reader Act is very narrowly tailored. It is confined only to sexually explicit content. And we don't see that in a lot of states where they're, you know, for lack of a better word, book ban does include other types of material, but we're really not seeing that with this bill. So are are there any other states out there that are, are doing a better job, in your opinion, of, of approaching this? Have you, have you had a chance to, to look at what some of the other solutions are being proffered elsewhere? So 
You know, interestingly enough, despite my legal critique of this act, I actually think its goals are are quite commendable. And much of the act, I think, is actually well constructed in that it is narrowly tailored to protecting children from sexually explicit content. And it doesn't get into more of the subjective political censorship that we see with other so-called book bans. So in that way, I really think this is actually a good example of how to put legislative guardrails on school curriculum. The only issue is when the state forces vendors to subjectively rate these titles and override it if it disagree if it disagrees it you know it sort of raises the question as to why the state didn't just assign the ratings themselves if they have the power to override them if they disagree and at what point do parents have to step up because i really i really believe parents are the dynamic behind this concern you know it's it's their concern over what their kids are seeing um where could they shoulder more responsibility and not to outsource this to regulators at various levels so i think in texas the parents are really the ones who caused this they're the legislative impetus for this bill it was the lobbying and going to town meetings and addressing school administrators that they were not comfortable with their children bringing this sort of thing home from school um now they're the bill requires parental consent which i think is a step in the right direction but i really think it's being outspoken and saying that you are not comfortable with this and sort of trying to pull back some of that autonomy to parent your child in the way that you see fit. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think most people would agree that state education should be confined to educational purposes like math, like reading, like science and sociability and the things that, you know, we remember going to school for when we were children, not to shape your social, political and moral compass. That that really belongs in the family domain and in a lot of people's opinions. And I, I think that's a, a brilliant way to put it. Again, we are talking with Jill Jacobson. Uh, she is a Young Voices contributor. And Jill, uh, for those who want to follow you or to follow your writing or find you on social media, what's the best way to go about that? Sure. I'm Jill C. Jacobson on Twitter. Okay. Very simple. Well, you actually, you took a... Uh, you took a really difficult and I think uh, hyperbole ridden topic and, and made a lot of sense out of it. I congratulate you on that. I can only hope more people will follow your advice and at some point, um, cooler heads will prevail on issues like this. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're very happy to welcome Young Voices contributor Natalie Voigt to the program. Uh, Natalie, always great to, uh, to get to meet the contributors to Young Voices. And for those meeting you for the first time, take a second to tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, um, so I'm a freelance writer and uh, I... I contribute right now to C3 Solutions, so I freelance for them. 
And I am also in the Young Voices program. I'm trying to expand my my platforms that I write for. And I'm a, I'm a graduate of the University of Florida. I studied political science and history. Uh, but I realized after college that I actually really enjoy writing. So right now I'm learning more about opinion pieces. All my life I studied academic writing, but... I am trying to establish myself basically as a as a journalist. Well, I've really enjoyed an article of yours that I just read about uh, affirmative action is gone. Now let's end legacy admissions. This is this is kind of a big deal. And for those who weren't paying attention, uh, it was not so long ago the Supreme Court put an end to affirmative action. Maybe we could walk through what that decision entailed, and then let's talk about how um, some universities, especially elite universities, still manage to kind of skirt uh, that uh, that prohibition of affirmative action through, through legacy admissions and how that works. Yeah. So after the Supreme Court abolished uh, affirmative action on June 29th, the entire college admissions um, process came under scrutiny. So it, it revived the, let's say, the legitimacy of, of the entire process writ large. And so people were rightly asking, okay, what about legacy admissions? Or I didn't mention this in my article, but there's also a lot of admits, uh, a lot of students that get admitted because of uh, sports or for having non-academic qualifications and then mostly tends to be wealthy white people um and so the policies that are in place right now are favoring specific groups so the affirmative action the the ruling put into question the whole notion of of just basically uh, making special privileges for special for special groups of instead of having the process from sorry my I'm a bit on the but instead of uh, having like a fair system for everybody what they were doing was having specific uh, privileges for specific groups which doesn't really make sense and so now we're people are rightly thinking about uh, legacy admins. Now, when we're talking Ivy League, let's let's name some names so people know. Um, I assume that Harvard would probably be one of those. What are some of the other Ivy League schools that uh, that might be part of this elite group of of universities? Right, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton. Um, actually, MIT isn't part of it. So there's some oh. that are well known that aren't Ivy League, but just your typical, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, Harvard. And I Columbia is another one. Okay. Columbia University. Mm-hmm. Every one of the ones that you've named here, I mean, I, I hear those and I think, ooh, yeah, those would be really hard to get into. Um, how how did they come about the the admission system that they have? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to imply that well, it's always been you know just for the privileged, but um, is there a reason or or is there some kind of reasoning as to to why they have the the strict kind of uh, admissions that they do? Yeah, people have rightly asked this question and have been wondering about this. And when I was actually reading a New York Times piece, the reporter said he so he had been trying to to put an end to the system basically, but then the answer that the universities would always give back to him was, 
okay, but we need the funding and mm -hmm. alumni give us the funding and we need this like old boys network. And yeah, we know it's not fair, but in the end, you know, money, right? And we need the funding and we need the money and donors and alumni, sorry, alumni and family of alumni are the most likely to donate. And that is true. So it came about due to financial reasons, I would say. Okay. But I would also add, uh, they make the argument that therefore it's necessary, right, in order to be funded. But then there's schools like MIT that have a strict no legacy admissions policies. So I'm wondering how they are able to self-sustain without relying on that. So it seems like their argument is weak, this argument about needing the money and needing the funding. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I can see where, you know, from a pragmatic point of view, we know where the the we know where the money is and especially if it's a, mm -hmm. a very expensive school to attend you know there's prestige right. you know i think you mentioned in your article the the chances of being placed in a in a very uh prosperous kind of career after attending one of these schools is quite high compared to just going to a, you know run-of-the-mill um state college or university but mm -hmm. uh, wow i so what's what's a good solution to this i mean are they private institutions? Do they should they have the right to to be discriminatory in the sense that uh, we want to to be able to associate with who we want to associate with, or are they are they running afoul of basic decency in in the way that they do that? So my opinion is they are running afoul of basic decency, and I my opinion is based on the fact that they receive they do receive taxpayer uh, money. And I do agree, I understand they're private institutions, so I do think there should be some leeway in general as to how they want to run their schools, and I think that's fine. You know, it's a private institution, but if they're going to be ta taking taxpayer money, and another thing is not just the money, and they have such a large effect, like going to these universities, you're way more likely to be in the top 1%, you're way more likely to get this job, because they have such a, a, a large effect on societal, like on future, on the future, like, uh, how do you say it? Like body of society, the future, who will be the future leaders? And it tends to be people from these schools. It's almost an aristocracy. I, I mean, it, it sounds right. like there, there's an aristocratic, I, and I'll take for instance, like um, Supreme Court justices. There is a mm -hmm. pretty predictable path that, that their education right. is going to follow. <laughs> They'll attend this school or this school, you know, and but there's a exactly. path that they follow to end up where they are. And I, I think it's very rare that you would find somebody who, who has taken a different journey to arrive, you know, in a seat on the Supreme Court. Right. So exactly. People that go through these schools tend to have a lot of influence on the future um, body politic, if you would say. Right. They have a lot of influence. Um, they tend to be Supreme Court, just people in high positions. So uh, because of this and because they are still taking money from taxpayers, I do think the government should have a say in this. And it's clear that they can have a say because they previously had a say in affirmative action. So it's clear that there's a way to to intervene here. Interesting. I mean, I, mm -hmm. gosh, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, you know, railing against the rich, but uh, it sure seems like this, this has worked out nicely for those with the the means and the connections to send their kids to these schools. And I'm sure for some, it's just, it's just tradition, but uh, right. that does seem to, to lend itself towards creating um, different tiers of society. And I'm not so sure that's a great idea. Yeah, so I also don't want to sound like, okay, I'm just uh, coming from like a very, uh, oh, oh, against the rich 
um, perspective, but in this case, I feel like the universities have hid this for too long or tried to distract people from the fact that, you know, with their own policies, they have their own, like kind of their own marketing that they, like Harvard, for example, has a center, they work with the WHO to make sure that the global poor and like in Sub-Saharan Africa and all that have more opportunities. So, the, the you know, through their research and everything, you only hear about this, but then you don't hear the real influence they have in American society is actually creating this next generation of, of a, yeah, aristocratic elite, intellectual elites. Yeah. Okay. Again, we are talking with Natalie Voigt. Uh, fascinating take on, on a really interesting subject, Natalie. Um, for people who want to follow your writing, where is the best place mm-hmm. for them to go? Where can they find you on social media too? Right. Uh, I would say that they should follow me on Facebook. (laughs) I'm still (laughs) using Facebook. And my writing regularly appears on C3 Solutions. I'm a longtime freelance contributor for them, and I regularly do company profiles. Um, So I would say they should check me out here, there. All right. Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Peter Clark to the program. Peter is a Young Voices contributor, and Peter, I'd love for you to take just a moment to to tell us just a little bit about yourself, if you would. Certainly, Brian. Um, It's a pleasure to be on the show. Um, Hey, my name is Peter Clark. I, you know, by day, I have a corporate job, and and then by night, I moonlight as an independent writer and researcher. Um, so I like to consider myself kind of like the Clark Kent of like individual liberty when it comes to <laughs> consumer choice matters. So, <laughs> well, we've got a doozy of consumer choice uh, to talk about today. Um, I was a little bit surprised because I, I guess this just wasn't on my radar screen before. Mm-hmm. Um, Arizona just abolished prescription requirements for contraceptives, and you say it's about time. I wow! I used to work in a drugstore, so I remember you know people mm-hmm. coming in to get their you know contraceptive prescriptions filled. But when we talk about uh, over the counter contraceptives, what exactly does that entail? Okay, well, what that would entail is that typically, you know, the the standard um, like you know birth control pills that you would take like on a regular cycle would be uh, would be available without a prescription. Although there is still a um, blood pressure screening requirement, which you know I'll I'll take that as a you know still a win, even though that there's still one minor requirement you know, required by the state. But outside of that, though, I think that that, you know, enables some pretty frictionless, um, you know, I guess you, you could say access to, 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 to contraceptives versus having to go, you know, you know, go to a doctor's appointment, get the examination and then have to, um, you know, get the prescription written out and then have to go to the pharmacy to go obtain said pill. So, okay. Yeah. I, is this, a, I mean, 26 states now, doing this it sounds like uh, it sounds like a trend that's growing what is the the genesis for the reasons why these states are starting to loosen some of those requirements i think you know you know that that's actually an excellent question brian I would I would say that you know a lot of it could be in reaction to kind of um, like the Dobbs decision potentially um, some some states might you know depending on the ideological um, 
leanings of, you know, of state leadership and all that might be, you know, reacting, responding to that. But I would also say, you know, I would also say too, you know, in, in regards to that, you know, there are um, some other off-label uses for, um, you know, over the, you know, for contraceptive pills, um, like it's been, you know, it's been, you know, utilized for, and I should specify to your listeners as well that, uh, you know, um, off-label uses are essentially, you know, um, uses that aren't necessarily approved by the FDA, but can still be prescribed for this use. Um, you know, for instance, for acne, mm-hmm. um, it's been proven to be um, effective with um, this fairly new syndrome, at least in my view, it's a fairly new one because uh, doctors are still kind of learning about it. Um, polycystic um, ovarian syndrome, which is uh, oftentimes known by the acronym PCOS. <clears throat> Interesting. And and even well, this one actually had had my jaw on the floor too. Um, and sorry for the expression there, but but because I, I was truly genuinely shocked by this, I was actually reading an article by the Mayo Clinic where they actually found that it's actually effective. Also, you know, having a regular regimen of taking um, contraceptives actually is correlated with a lower instance of ovarian cancer, which I was quite surprised by that. I mean, I'm like, wow, that's that's incredible, you know. So I think that you know we could certainly. You know, that's another reason, too, that may not necessarily be, you know, on the radar for most uh, politicians and lawmakers. But for me, that's that's more than enough of a reason to want to expand access in of itself. So even if there are cultural objections to it, there are some, you know, off label uses that have, you know, nothing to do with contraceptive. Contraception. Yeah, and I appreciate that you point out in your article. This is not the same thing as a chemical abortion, because I know some people are are very sensitive to anything that you know that uh, would would further um, abortion, and and they might be in they might be inclined to lump this in with that. Um, why was it a prescription in the first place? Was it was it uh, is there an inherent hazard in birth control? Well, I think that that might be somewhat of a misconception in terms of the hazard itself, because um, I actually just read an article um, that was written by uh, Jeffrey Singer over at the Cato Institute, where he was actually arguing to to, to have all um, contraceptives to be over the counter versus just the one that the FDA approved for over counter, which I believe is Opil, which um, which th- that in and of itself is just kind of what they refer to as a mini pill. Which meaning that it only has progesterone and not uh, estrogen, and it's slight, it's less effective, and it tends to be where a little unforgiving in terms of the regiment schedule. Because if you don't take it within a certain time frame, it's going to be less effective in preventing pregnancy. So, um, I you know while you know hats off to the FDA to a certain extent for not you know requiring a prescription for that, it's still not enough because. Um, because uh, in that getting back to circling back to uh, Jeffrey Singer's article, um, he actually mentions that the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists actually found that the risk of, um, of forming blood clots that break off and travel throughout the body um, is actually higher during pregnancy or in the postpartum period than it is while taking birth control, which is has been generally cited as a major risk of taking uh, contraceptive contraceptives. But well, and you mentioned there are other over-the-counter drugs that nobody really bats an eye at that uh, that actually may have more um, hazard to them or be more dangerous than than even contraceptives. Yeah, because even like Tylenol, which we all have taken it at some point. Well, 
most people have. I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I know I have um, at certain times I try to avoid it. But um, yeah, but yeah, Tylenol has been associated with liver failure. Uh, Benadryl, which you know we take for our allergies, right? I know out here in Arizona, a lot of us suffer from allergies, um, and you know that in high dosages. Um, can be fatal um it can you know create you know various stages of cognitive impairment like a state of intoxication if you will or even um <clears throat> or even seizures and death um you know kind of like if you've seen this craze on tiktok uh, the benadryl challenge it's an incredibly asininely dangerous uh <laughs> challenge i really wish uh youngsters would kind of avoid participating in such activities but um that's the first I've heard of it, but uh, if it's if it's a TikTok challenge, I, I have no doubt it's it's probably not a great idea. Certainly not, and I'd advise any if you have any younger listeners out there to avoid uh, such challenges. But but yeah, but if we can have such um, such over the counter drugs easily available, I don't see why we couldn't have or the over the over the counter uh, contraception available as well um i mean and even at that too i mean the plan b pill has been on the market over the counter for years i mean like i think what was it was it i forget if it was 2004 or 2006 when it when it was officially brought to brought to the market over the counter and i mean i think it, you know and that has uh far more progesterone than um than your standard uh birth control pill so i i could see you know you know, again, it's kind of another one of those situations where if if we can have, um, you know, this drug over the counter, why can't we have this drug, if that makes sense? Absolutely. And and actually, look, I, I'm not saying that it should just be a free for all, but there's a, there were a lot of things that I would like to see a lot less more controlled by government um, and, and more put in, putting the responsibility on people with their doctors, you know, to make the decision, you know, whether or not to, to get it. I, I have friends who, for instance, travel regularly to, to Mexico because you can get antibiotics and things like this, you know, without having to get a prescription. And, and maybe that's a different topic for a different show, but I, I would love to see more things made more readily available, especially when, as you mentioned in your article, uh, for people without insurance, sometimes it, it can be, you know, prohibitively expensive. And even for those with insurance, you know, these, these things can get super complicated super quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, and I have a little bit of a kind of a, I guess you could say like a little bit of a bird's eye view of that because um being being here on in a border state you know i i I see i know i know i you know you hear of people all the time you even know of like co-workers you know neighbors what have you that go down to mexico mexico because of the hassle of having to you know have to have it go through the process of obtaining you know going to doctors obtaining a um prescription you know and whether or not and whether or not the um there is actually a good good cause for it so where does this go from here? Are more states likely to start loosening controls on uh, birth control or at least making more options available over the counter? Does this does this appear to be a trend that uh, could go nationwide? I, I think in turn, I think that it, it, it is a um, it's a trend that you'll see probably more so, I think, in more um, blue states, I would say. Now, Arizona isn't necessarily a blue state, in my opinion, but, um, you know, it has a little bit of a mixed you know, political culture, but, um, but I do, I think, yeah, definitely you'll probably see it more prevalent in blue states, but maybe, maybe someday you'll see it across the nation, but I think it's going to be kind of more in a, you know, your, your typical federalist style, much how like we had with marijuana legalization. So, and I, and I think that's, you know, not a bad way to approach it. So. 
Okay. Well, it's, it's good to hear about uh, medical liberty moving forward. Again, we're talking with Peter Clark. Peter, uh, for those who want to follow you on social media or otherwise follow your writings, where can they do that? Uh, follow me on the Twitterverse at blog underscore logic. And hey, feel free to reach out. You know, have any questions, concerns about my work, please let me know. Okay. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Jonathan W. Plant. He's a PhD candidate at George Mason University and also a Young Voices contributor. And Jonathan, I'm sure I'm probably leaving out a few essential details. Take a moment here and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, so I am, as you had just said, a uh, PhD candidate in economics at uh, George Mason University. Um, I also am a uh, research intern currently at the, the uh, Cato Institute and will be starting a position as a uh, regulatory economist at the Office of Advocacy at the Small Business Administration. So I have a, a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, more credentials and experience uh, for economics, which is why I and uh, written this piece that I'll be talking with you about today. Okay, no, I'm not a smoker, so I didn't realize that, uh, I didn't know that there was a pending ban from the FDA on menthol cigarettes. And uh, tell me about, uh, has this been something that's been in the works for a while, or is this something that just kind of suddenly has, has come forward and is likely to become a reality? Yeah, uh, so I also am not a smoker. I mean, I'll have uh, the occasional uh, cigar, but I mean, I I really don't uh, uh, smoke cigarettes. I uh, more so choose not to for my own uh, health reasons. Um, but to answer your actual question, um, yes, it has been in the works for some time. Uh, it's been around for a couple of years, and there have been uh, some organizations that have been uh, lobbying or trying to push to uh, push uh, some some advocacy on on the part of consumers uh, to go to politicians to try to change uh, some of the uh, rules that we have on cigarettes and in particular on uh, menthol uh, cigarettes. Uh, so, so, so why menthol? I'm happy. Why why is yeah. menthol a target? So there's a couple of reasons. Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of reasons why menthol. So first. Um, I, again, have never smoked a uh, cigarette, but, but according to uh, some research by the uh, Food and Drug Administration or the, the FDA, um, menthol makes uh, cigarettes easier to smoke uh, because if you don't have menthol or have this, this uh, kind of filter that has that, uh, that menthol kind of like uh, taste to it, it can be a very harsh uh, taste, and it can be very hard to, uh, to inhale and then smoke the uh, tobacco. So for this reason, um, there's this ban that is being pushed uh, because if, if we can uh, try to reduce the amount of menthol that is out in cigarettes, then we can supposedly 
uh, stop people from smoking, which can then uh, prevent uh, some deaths and prevent people from uh, getting addicted uh, to cigarettes. So that's the reason uh, why behind it. It's more that it makes uh, cigarettes easier to smoke, and thus, as a result, it can make people get uh, more addicted, which can cause uh, some some deaths if it's not addressed. So I'm going to run that through my translator, and this is this is from years of having, um, you know, studied bureaucratic language. Um, it sounds yeah. a lot like what they're trying to say is, look, we're not trying to take away smoking. We're just trying to make this particular kind of smoking as unpleasant as possible. <laughs> so to discourage to discourage people from smoking. Yeah. So essentially, and I mean to your point. So to your point, yes, it is. Uh, trying to discourage uh, certain people, and it's kind of interesting how you brought that up. And and from what I saw uh, in my research, the supposed uh, target uh, for this is to stop uh, certain minority groups, uh, people who are in the uh, black and African American type communities, because 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 according to the FDA. Uh, these people are the the ones that typically are the ones who are getting uh, menthol cigarettes. Um, and also, there were, according to the FDA again, there were uh, some some advertisements that came out in the 1980s and 1990s that were uh, targeted to to black uh, communities uh, with the new uh, menthol uh, type cigarettes. So it seems like there is this this kind of, uh, I guess, like white horse uh, kind of uh, mission on behalf of the uh, bureaucrats, but there seems to be a little bit more uh, happening uh, here also. Interesting. Now, in spite of the fact that uh, neither you nor I smoke, I I would wager we're probably mm-hmm. on the same page when it comes to the idea that uh, prohibition whether it be of alcohol or whether it be of menthol cigarettes, does not do away with the demand for something that obviously people want and are willing to, to pay to get. Talk to me about how this uh, could actually increase profits for the cartels and actually increase crime at the same time. Yeah, so uh, great question. So I'm going to start with the uh, first half of what you said. Um, so as you uh, have started off just because we make something illegal that will not stop the uh, quantity demanded for something and i use that term uh very specifically uh quantity demanded uh, meaning that we're not going to see anyone who uh, really wants cigarettes uh, whether they are addicted or they just uh, really enjoy them we will not see uh, that total number actually uh, decrease uh, and there is a whole a whole uh, literature out there, not just on cigarettes, not just on alcohol, but really any type of consumer good or service that has been outlawed or has had some kind of, uh, quote, uh, sin tax on it. We still see that consumer demand uh, stay uh, the same. So because of this, uh, what happens instead um, is we have to go to the, the, the supply side. Uh, uh, certain people uh, don't uh, want to obviously get in trouble. They don't want to get uh, fined. They don't want to uh, 
go out of business. So on the supply side, we won't see as much of uh, certain types of producers uh, still uh, manufacturing and distributing uh, cigarettes, but there are uh, some groups, and as you said, cartels who specialize in, in smuggling, who specialize in, in uh, still uh, manufacturing and then distributing uh, certain types of goods, which which can include uh, some drugs, but also uh, some cigarettes. Uh, sometimes uh, in the past, it's also been uh, bootlegged uh, alcohol as well. So they can do this uh, because uh, they, they being the cartels, have the equipment and have the assets to smuggle uh, goods because they have guns, they have a lot of channels to be able to uh, bring any kind of illegal substance around. Uh, so because they have this this kind of a dual good of both uh, crime and these illegal drugs, they they have to kind of come together. They're in economic terms, almost like they're a, a complement. So they can bring in or smuggle uh, certain types of goods, in this case, uh, the illegal, if the, the ban passes, uh, these, these illegal uh, menthol cigarettes. But with that, we will see an increase in crime. And in fact, it's actually been something that has been studied uh, by several researchers, and they have seen this in, in several states uh, so far. And there is research out there that shows that there is a, a huge threat of this uh, incoming uh, into the country, uh, more so especially at the border in states uh, like Arizona, uh, where this could take place. Jonathan, I love how you conclude the article by noting, look, we're facing a choice here and, you know, the ban may be well-intentioned, but if it's not going to decrease the addiction, the death or the health disparities, and if, if, if it may actually prompt an increase in crime, maybe there's a better way <laughs> that we could address this. I mean, I would love to yes. live in a smoke-free society, yes. but I want to live in one that's that way, not because people were forced to by law, but because they realized, you know what, there's a healthier way of, of living our lives. Yeah, and, and I don't want to uh, disagree on this point. I, so I don't think that we need to, to really live in a smoke-free uh, society. Uh, maybe we could just try to find a better way to, uh, to what you said earlier, just try to, to decrease the disparities in, in uh, certain minority groups and also in, in uh, children who are getting addicted and then uh, decreasing the number of uh, deaths, but there has to be some uh, better way of doing this than okay. just trying to outlaw. I got to jump in really here, Jonathan. We are up against the clock, and I won't deny you your cigar either. I know those are good things. Jonathan Plant with Young Voices, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show.